Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I'm delighted to talk again to Imam Tom. Welcome back, sir. Thank you so much for having me, as always. Always great to be back. Uh, as you'll know, Tom has uh, kindly agreed to discuss the books that have made a significant difference to him intellectually. Today, Tom will continue to discuss an extremely important book, The Impossible State. This is it here. Islam, Politics and Modernity's Moral Predicament by Professor Halak. I actually do like the design on this cover, actually. It's so cool. But anyway, um, who is he? Well, Professor, he is Professor in the Humanities at Columbia University, uh, where Halak has been teaching law, ethics and political thought since 2009. And he's considered a leading scholar in the field of Islamic legal studies and has been described as one of the world's leading authorities on Islamic law, even though he himself is actually a Christian. Um, so over to you, Tom. Okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah, salatu salamu We had left off at a particular point in the book in his chapter on premises, and we kind of left off intentionally because what he was about to get into um, is part of the most important framing of the entire book and his entire thesis. So if we're talking about um, the modern state, okay, which this book is about, right, impossible state, we're talking about which state is impossible, a modern Islamic state, um, we need to define our terms. We need to talk about what is modernity and what is the state. Yep. Now, um, if we were using other terms, perhaps this would be a very, very easy rote exercise. We could just throw out a definition and roll with it. But defining what modernity is, um, is an extremely contested thing. Uh, and defining what a state is, is also an extremely contested thing. There are multiple sorts of... Um, attempts to get at what this thing is why is it so difficult because these are the structures that we live within currently and so um like somebody sort of uh trapped within four walls it's harder to understand the frame in which you currently are in as opposed to something that's external to yourself right if you're looking back um and we'll talk about this looking back quote unquote in history and looking to some sort of other formation that's external that you're no longer in, you might have a, a, a vantage point that allows you to define it in a very, very precise way. However, when the frame that you're talking about is one that is supposedly self-evident and also imminent, it touches everything, even the ways in which you are experiencing the world, it becomes very, very difficult to actually wrap your head around it. So Halak uh, attempts this this mm. project, or at least this this, um, defining of these terms. What is modernity and uh, what is the state? 
such that we can then evaluate, well, where does Islam fit in? Is it possible to have such a thing as an Islamic state in the modern era? Um, is modernity something that we should be keeping or discarding? Is it something that we should be affirming or challenging? Um, and is the state a useful political sort of technology or mechanism to achieve Islamic goals or some sort of facilitous outcome with, within Islamic moral framework? So this is all very, very crucial to all of those questions. You can't talk about modernity without talking about time. Mm. The very, very word modern has within it certain assumptions about time and how it moves. <clears throat> it actually kind of sets itself up to define itself as opposed to things that came before, right? If you have this idea that, okay, well, we are modern. Okay, well, well, that doesn't really tell you very much. It, things might come to mind. You might have associations of technology or you know, um, uh, a certain sort of bureaucracy. But really what it is, is that it's supposed to be contrasted with something that came before it that's left undefined, but assumed. <clears throat> so this is the idea of progress, of course, from the, 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 the idea of continual progress and betterment of the world. Yeah. Exactly. And we've talked before, and this is very crucial, I think, uh, uh, to, to kind of chase the shadows of modernity and to see the contours of it, that people use this sort of language when they disagree with somebody or they're trying to um, even insult them or, or take issue with what they're doing and say, well, you're stuck in the past. Um, you are, you know, it, it, your mode of thinking is outdated, we say. You need to get with the times, right? Uh, you're just, you want to bring us back to the era of cavemen, right? Back to the Stone Age. We had, you know, American officials threatening to bomb certain nations, quote unquote, back to the Stone Age. It's very, within those sorts of pejoratives and statements, we have an entire metaphysics. We have an entire sort of ideology that's present there. Um, and part of that ideology is a certain understanding of what time is and how it can move. Mm, okay, So yeah. the, the idea that, yeah, as you said, the, what Halak calls the doctrine of progress, Okay, it takes a certain assumption of what time is and how it can move to say that something like progress is even possible in the first place. We have an imagination that time is sort of linear, right? And fairly homogenous. So there were eras before, and you know, we have these kind of things we call years that mark the calendar, and we are slowly marching forward. And we assume that we are marching forward indeed and not marching backwards. Such that we can say, well, we don't want to go back. And, and how many academic articles or books have you read where the author in the end, he has to, you know, his publisher is forcing him to give some sort of way out or some sort of conclusion. He says, well, we can't go back. Well, that's a whole idea of what time is that you could go back to it or not go back to it in the first place. Is the past really back? Is it something that we aren't contemporaneously living at the same time? Okay, so there's a certain definition of time here, and it should be defined and uh, have our attention drawn to it so that we can maybe push back and see, well, is this really the most accurate descriptive way to describe time? Is this some concealing other sorts of things? To define time as something that is linear and something that is moving forward um, is indeed concealing other things. It's, as Halak says, more of an ideological position, okay? And it creates, it has a moral dimension to it. It creates certain moral imperatives, right? It has baked within it the assumption that whatever is coming down the block as new or come. Say goodbye 
to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Coming through the pipeline is better, right? And it has an assumption that whatever we have left behind and, and moved on from is somehow worse. Halak describes this as ephemeral truth. Okay, the modern era is defied, defined by ephemeral truth, meaning that there's an assumption that everything that we currently believe is the most true possible thing that we could believe in or be doing. Now, it might be replaced in the near future, but it's certainly better than what came before it. And we can only look at sort of, I guess, the woke culture and sort of woke values and, and the sorts of things that have been changing quite rapidly to kind of see how these sort of what our society holds as sacred can change so quickly um, mm. and how the values that we had even just five years ago are no longer sufficient. Or even five minutes ago, I would or say. Or even five minutes ago, of course. The, 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 the rate of change or progress, uh, as it's called, seems to accelerate and, and knows no natural terminus. It seems to just be open-ended. So who knows what the next uh, obligation, the uh, next letter to be added to the alphabet LGBTQ, whatever it will be, incest, pedophilia, bestiality. Sorry to mention these things, but these are all possible in this world of progression and progress. Yes, exactly. And so we create a situation here by defining um, time in such a way and by assuming that a prog that progress is being made, and this is something that people take on faith as a doctrine, right? a dogma even. Um, we create this situation where we are always assuming that we are how we are arriving at the most true conclusions or most true way of living right now. Hmm. Now, um, this is very, very slippery, okay? Because we're also admitting, and people have pointed this out when it comes to, again, like sort of uh, wokeness and, and so, so on and so forth, that we're admitting that five years or 10 years from now, or yes, five minutes from now, our way of thinking is going to be outdated, right? And yet that doesn't, give us pause when it comes to the the violence that we're willing to to perform right we we see all these sorts of things um you know uh, rainbow flags being painted on bombs that are being dropped in the middle east and things like this right nobody gives pause by saying well you know maybe five years from now we'll think differently about this no this is the most currently true thing and it's much more true than anything that came in the past and it sort of is a self-referential schema of truth. And that's another thing that Halak points out, is that there's no foundation or reference except for itself. Okay, why is it true? It's because it's the latest thing. And anybody who studies logic will know that this is a fallacy. And yet this undergirds so much of how we automatically feel about things in the modern era and our sensibilities. You know, it's the latest. You have the latest phone, the latest medicine, 
cutting edge, right? All these sorts of things. We assume that that is good. We assume that it's better, even if we're admitting that it will be replaced one day and one day will not any longer be the best. There's an assumption that in the point in time that we inhabit right now, that it is the absolute best. Uh, and, and just to, he mentions in, in passing in the, the bit I, I read, the the uh, the attempt to, to dominate and control nature and the environment and the, catas the catastrophic consequences of this uh, scientific progressive attitude of exploiting natural resources. And, you know, we, we know where we're going with this. So th th this attempt to be progressive and ever more cutting edge can lead to absolutely world threatening consequences. It's not it's not just neutral. It, it, it can really impact our lives in quite terrible. And we're seeing it now with the consequences of climate change. Yes, and the I think the most dangerous thing, and, and Halak is getting at this when he's talking about how self-referential modern mm. history is or, or the doctrine of progress is, is that you can't critique it. You can't challenge it because by very definition you know, of, of time or the assumption of time that's, that's you know, within this sort of doctrine is that it's already the best. And if we have any critique of it, it's simply going to be fixed in the next update or the next iteration or the next whatever right so we might see cracks you might point out cracks like oh we, we're polluting the oceans and oh we, you know um we're, we're killing some sort of species and making them extinct and so on and so forth but the assumption is always what the assumption is always that the issue is or the resolution to that issue is just around the corner we have simply not yet found the cure we have simply not yet found the technology or invented the thing that is going to be able to save us from the problem that the march of progress has put us in in the first place. And this and march so of progress, is very, it, as, as Alex says, is very particular to a, a, a specific part of the globe. It's local, it's geographically located in Europe and the United States. Um, and it has particular historical um, roots. Uh, you know, we can trace back to the Enlightenment and he mentions Hegel as well. This is not um, a universal, neutral, value-free system. It's highly specific, culturally, philosophically contingent on upon a unique set of circumstances in Europe's history mm -hmm. uh, that with pretenses to be global and universal. And, and this is a, a highly questionable assumption in Wallach's view. Yes, definitely. And, and that's one of his first sort of defining features of the state, which we'll get to in a second. But yeah. just so uh, like, just to finish sort of the, the, the um, conception of time. So, mm. okay, how else could we imagine time? I guess that's something that if people are stuck in the, 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 the doctrine of progress, the march of progress, while we're doing the best that we can, it's better than what was before, before we had poverty and disease and famine, and now we have you know, health and modern medicine, before we had um, you know, traditional oppression and sort of things like that, and now we have freedom and individuality. Okay, what's another way of relating to time? Even though Halak challenges all those sorts of supposed mm -hmm. fruits of modernity and progress, um, uh, in and of themselves, an alternative way to relating about time can be revealed by looking at how the field of history has changed over time. We mentioned this when we talked about Talal Asad, about the histories of the Greeks, right? We're not modern histories in the sense that we use the term. Okay. We weren't obsessed with accounting for every single factual, um, you know, detail of what actually happened in human experience, nor do we consider all human experience to be homogenous, universal, able to be recorded. The pre-modern history or the pre-modern idea of history or pre-enlightenment idea of history was something that was moral, okay? It was intended to instruct. 
you yeah. have the fables and you have the different sort of stories and you've got Herodotus going here and there. It's all intended to instruct. The question isn't, did this really happen? That's the modern question. Mm -hmm. Okay. The question is, how should this be informing what I'm doing right now? Mm -hmm. We could call this, instead of modern time, we could call this moral time. Right. Um, and this is very, very Islamic, this idea, because if you read the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala critiques some of the Quraysh for saying what? These are just um stories from the past. That's one of the that's one of the, the critiques of the Quraysh, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala challenges them on that and says that you no, no, you can't say that. That's the wrong way to look at time. You are living the past again right now. Okay, everything that you have within the Quran, these are typologies. Yes, they're also historically in the modern sense true. Fir'aun and you know, uh, Qarun and all these sorts of characters, they're, they're literally true, but there's a trans historical element to them and there's a moral dimension to them. How are you going to act right now? What are you supposed to do if you're in this situation? All right, and so it collapses that line of linear history and it actually makes it into maybe something of a point or a loop or a spiral or something like this is that. We benefit from the past within moral history. In fact, we are living the past again right now. Mm -hmm. And we're going to constantly continue to relive the past uh, until, and this is kind of the, the moral dimension of, you know, being tested and accountability and then judgment in the, in the afterlife and things like this. That's not modern time. Modern time, you can't learn from the past. Mm -hmm. We can't go back, right? Um, we're not going to go back to the Stone Age. We're not going to go back to doing those. It's, we, it's we not just you. you target, yeah, but you are actually not allowed to. For example, if, if some Christian um, was to, uh, you mentioned certain recent fashions, um, was to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible right. as a moral lesson for us today. We know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, th that would be immediately ruled out as completely unacceptable and illicit. But that's the application of timeless truth, biblical truth, uh, is it the Quranic truth as well, to our contemporary. But that, that's somehow invalid to do that. But for a Christian, a Jew and a Muslim, uh, traditionally understood, th these are valid comparisons. They're moral evaluations of our era in the light of previous uh, generations who underwent God's judgment uh, in the past. So just to illustrate your point, perhaps. Yes, exactly. And, and the modern frame will say, well, you need to update your interpretation of those stories in order to adhere to modern values, right? Because now we've got the best possible values. Whereas the moral time would say, no, we are living the exact same thing again, even if the minor details are changing. Um, and the point is to, uh, what's the right response? That's what we're being asked. So they're entirely different ways of conceiving of the world and of time. Mm. Moving on to the state, okay, so this is also, you know, the second sort of major sort of point that Halak wants us to consider. What is it? Um, Halak goes through, he rifles through a bunch of conceptualizations of the state that are, you know, um, offered by different thinkers. He talks about theses of the state. Hegel, can, you know, said that the, the state was sort of like an organic ethical impulse, all right, to organize, just like we say, well, people, they, they, they group up into these sorts of groups, and that's just natural. Uh, Hobbes and Smith sort of, sort of considered this, the state as a state of nature. This is natural to man. Um, you know, Marx imagined the state as sort of an expression of class domination. Uh, he talks about Kelsen and Gramsci, obviously Gramsci with hegemony and Foucault with culture and Weber with uh, bureaucracy. And there's all these sorts of different lenses through which the state has been defined over the years. And Halak, his, his thesis, or one of the things that he asserts is that they are not mutually exclusive, is that they actually complement each other and they are a synthesis. You can use them all to look at the state 
in a different sort of way. However, what we really want to get at is what are the essential elements of the state that make it a state? Yeah, We don't want to get lost in the things that might belong to the state, but also might belong to a different political technology. We don't yeah. want to get lost in the things that might have been uh, a, a central feature of the state in the beginning of its history, but then were discarded later and thus not essential to it. So how do we drill down on the things that are absolutely fundamental structures and properties of the state? Mm-hmm. Halak has his, uh, his thesis and his ideas, and he says that there are five. Interesting to note, before we get into those five, he says that there are certain things that are variables that are contingent, they're they're incidental, that they're not sort of uh, absolutely essential structures of the state, whether a state is liberal or not, whether a state is socialist or, or capitalist, whether it's uh, democratic or has oligarchs or whether it's communist. He says these things are not essential to the state. The state can have them or, or not have them. Um, I, I, I like Halak's uh, great theoretical subtlety here and ability to um, uh, interact with quite complex phenomena in ways that are not rigid or, you know, he's not got his controlling model that marshals the evidence and cuts off bits that don't fit in. Is a very sophisticated and yet simple at the same time uh, way of approaching the subject of what is the modern state. So I, I think I, this is why one, of the, one of the reasons why this book is uh, has been esteemed so highly, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And, and this is one of the more, you know, we, we've both kind of commented off camera about how sometimes hit in the in the um, one of our commenters, I think they said, well, they blamed Foucault for his the, the points in his writing, which are not clear. And that's fair. And sometimes his his writing is a little bit up yes. to, to get through to say <laughs> that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, this particular it, it, part, I think, of the book is, is more fairly straightforward than perhaps other parts of it. It, it is. It is loose. I think once you, once you get into the kind of the, the, the swing of understanding his style, then it's intelligible. But it, it's certainly not as poetic and beautiful as uh, Edward Said. We were comparing oh, sure. the author of Orientalism. He was a, a total pleasure to read from a literary point of view. Wallach isn't, but his ideas are uh, amazing and worth uh, pursuing nonetheless. Right. We could have we could have hoped that Halak had a double major in English, but that wasn't the case. Um last minor point when it comes to the things that are variable and not essential to the state, he makes another subtle point, as you said, that just because one sort of um, historical form was present or essential even at the beginning of the formation of the technology of the state does not mean that it's necessarily essential to it. He talks about capitalism in this way. He said, you can't talk about the history of the state as a political technology without talking about capitalism. Capitalism was very much on the ground and responsible for the formation of the modern state. However, capitalism is not something that's essential to it. It can be discarded or taken up um, and you still have the state there present anyway. So, okay, if that's not essential to the state, then what is? Halak Mm. says five things. I'll try to list them here first and then we'll try to get into the weeds on that. Yeah. Number one, um, as you mentioned, the state is the product of a specific and local history. Very, very essential. Two, yeah. the state has certain ideas of sovereignty and metaphysics yeah. that or give it its fun- fundamental form. Three, the state involves legislation, law, and violence. Four, the state is a rational bureaucratic machine. And five, the state is an expression of cultural hegemony or a politicization of the cultural. What does he mean by all these sorts of things? Number one is fairly intuitive and self-explanatory and yet contested. 
and yet contested. And, and he takes the task people who, you know, look back at Medina, for example, and say, oh, the Medinan state or the early Muslim state, or they look back at certain other political technology throughout time and refer to them as a state or refer to the people who inhabit them as citizens. He said, no, 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 wait a second. This is not, a, the state is not a trans-historical category. It's not a universal category. We can't yeah. use the word state. We can't, let me rephrase that. We can't gloss every political technology or yeah. political arrangement in time as a state. That simply won't do it. That's part of, just like with the idea of modern progress, that's part of a move that's ideological that conceals right, yeah. our ability to actually describe it and, and determine it's, what it's are also, the... It's also very anachronistic, is, is to simply yes. recreate the past in our own image. But of course, the past is a foreign country, as someone once said. It's not necessarily the same as us. Exactly. Right. And so like, you know, what it does is it stops that prevents questions. Thinking about the state as trans-historical and universal prevents us from asking questions about, well, what was the conception of law in back then, quote unquote, or in Medina? Or what was the um, conception of the subject? What was the relationship between law and subject and morality? These things shift from political technology to, to political technology. And the state has one particular arrangement among other particular arrangements and we need to particularize it in order to study it and understand it better so yes. point number one is that this is a product of specific local history and that local specific history is undoubtedly european okay so he says that europe was the near exclusive laboratory within which the state was formed and he says near exclusive because he says the colony right the colonial sort of era was also an essential sort of component to the, the development of the modern state. Not that the colonies were states, but that the um, techniques that the modern states adopted were often experimented or tested out in the colonies. Um, and that's a whole other discussion. Um, pause, it's a really important point here, just to pause on this. So, so Halleck is saying that the modern nation states, that we, we see them in the Middle East, in Arab countries and mm -hmm. elsewhere, are actually the historical product of a European experience almost exclusively except for the you know the, the experiences of the colonies these are european colonies as well like india for british and india he mentions and this is really important because they're not just like natural expressions of nationhood these are very uh, culturally historically specific and have their character defined by european experience mm -hmm. you know to do with coming out of the middle age of the reformation the enlightenment particularly and subsequent experience afterwards and so it, it is it's not organically <laughs> didn't organically grow out of the muslim world for example it was something that was imposed you think of iraq for example iraq a nation state well who created that you know um, we could go through a long list of nation states that were entirely the creation of western powers yes exactly and and to, to demonstrate the point as well well we could ask well what if we never had a european enlightenment would the modern nation state exist and the answer is probably not Right? There were other political technologies. You had the Ottoman Empire, you had the Mughal Empire, you had different sorts of political technologies, arrangements between, again, subjecthood and law and morality that existed throughout the world. And it was only due to the European Enlightenment that provided sort of the um, epistemic foundations or the philosophical foundations of this particular arrangement that from which sprung the actual political arrangement of the nation state, and then it spread out from there. So this is not a universal category. It's not a trans-historical category. It's something that is actually very particular and very recent and very recent. 
Uh, um, this, this, this just a pause on this, by the nature. There's almost the reading Halak is he he demystifies. Is he almost a demythologization yeah. of our modern consciousness? Um, so it, it's, it's a psychological transformation reading his work because suddenly you become aware of the particularity, the historical contingency of what are normally thought of as universal and value-free forms. And and so he's really it's a reality. It's a uh, to use the matrix analogy is taking the red pill rather than the blue pill suddenly oh really that's what it's like it's not some kind of you know the, the blue pill would just say yeah this is neutral and modern we just carry on living like this as we always will do uh no the red this is a red pill book if i may put it that way yeah and um you know to put it a way that a, a former professor put it it's illuminating the solid ground upon which you stand mm. okay so you know m m most of us we pass through life and we're just on this sort of ground and that ground forms the arena or the terrain with which we move and forms the contours and topography of where we can go. And if we're not really aware of what we're standing on, then we can't really determine our potentialities for movement and motion and change. Mm -hmm. So that's the first sort of uh, essential structure or property, uh, which is the, the specificity and locality of the, of the history of this sort of thing as a distinctly European and recently European um, product. The yeah. second has to do with the sovereignty and the metaphysics of the state. This is something mm -hmm. distinct from yes. other forms of political arrangements and political technologies. Yes. Um, to go into the weeds a little bit here, um, he says that sovereignty within the modern state is both impersonal and abstract. Okay, sovereignty, of course, referring to the ultimate authority, right? Like where does where does this political technology derive its authority from? You know, we have the myth. And then we have reality. The myth is, you know, uh, the social compact or the social contract. And you go to the voting polls and I go to the voting polls. And my act of voting is supposedly a surrender of some of my rights in order to get protections and these sorts of things. Um, this is a mythology that we need to unpack. Is this really what's going on? And mm -hmm. I would challenge and, and I push back on. This is actually, you know, to, to make a minor sort of detour here, this is significant when it comes to Muslims who talk about the act of voting. Um, is it sort of a recognition of authority or giving bay'ah, which might be, you know, either theologically or uh, legally um, undesirable or problematic within sort of Islamic law and things like that? Am I going to, by going to the voting polls, am I giving sovereignty or giving recognition or offering sovereignty to the state, a non-Muslim state? that rules by other than the Sharia? Have I committed some sort of offense by doing this? And those who I think conceptualize that this is what's going on when I go to the, the, the polling booth, they are assuming the mythology of the state as fact. Because the state is trying to tell us and the modern state is telling us that every time you go to the polling booth, you are giving sovereignty. You are giving your pledge of allegiance. You are affirming that this whole system is true and right and good. But the fact is, if you didn't show up to the polling station and nobody showed up to the polling station, the state would still be there, right? It doesn't matter how low the participation numbers go, uh, state's not going anywhere. <laughs> so and they can be seriously low in general elections around you know, 20%, you know, 80% <laughs> population just ignore it. And yet the system continues, continues. <laughs> right. So how, you know, how true and how descriptive is this whole idea of the social compact theory and uh, us handing over our, our sovereignty at the, at the ballot box and how much it, of it is a myth and a legitimizing myth at that. But that's a detour for another day, but I think it is interesting. Um, <clears throat> so the sovereignty within the state, okay, yep. it's based off of the idea of a will 
two representation, right? He's playing off of Nietzsche here, the will to power. The state, yeah. you can consider it as the will to representation, okay? We have, you know, people who are listening, we've been throwing around maybe the idea of nation state versus state. Well, why do people, what's the difference between a state and a nation state? The nation gets at the sovereignty of the state, okay? Because the nation is supposed to embody the state. Okay, there's supposed to be this thing. The state is okay. Living in the United States, we have the White House, we have you know the um, the Congressional Building, we have the Supreme Court, and all these sorts of facilities and people. Who are they supposed to represent? Who are they supposed to speak on behalf of? The nation, right? And you can get into Benedict Anderson if you want, and go to imagined communities and see kind of the sort of history of this sort of idea, or this construct of as the state excuse me, as the nation, but the idea is that the state represents the nation. The nation is the sole authority or author of its own will and destiny, right? And that the state is the expression of the popular collective will. The state is the expression of the popular collective will, and that is what gives it legitimacy, okay? Can, can, I, can um, I just pause there? There's a marvelous please. quote, uh, thank you, um, on page 28 of uh, Halatz, but where he quotes Karl Schmidt, the uh, famous German writer of the 1930s. And uh, he, he writes, Carl Schmidt cast the matter incisively when he wrote the following. And this is where um, Halak brings in theology, which I find very interesting. All, sec all significant concepts of the modern theory of the state are secularized theological concepts. They're secularized theological concepts originally, not only because of the historical development in which they were transferred from theology to the theory of the state in European history, obviously, whereby, for example, the omnipotent God became the omnipotent lawgiver, but also because of their systematic structure. So we went from theology to a secularized theory of the state, uh, where we had the, before we had the omnipotent God, and then you had the omnipotent sovereign nation state, which is a law unto itself with no higher transcendent reference, like God himself. And so it's like a secularized theological concept, according to Carl Schmidt. And I thought it was particularly clever and insightful comment. Yeah, very much so. And that, that does get at the heart of um, the whole idea of sovereignty um, and domestic sovereignty. He says that, you know, there's no order higher than the state. Yeah. Right. Um, the state is not held accountable to mm -hmm. any sort of. And Schmidt's whole thing with like the state of exceptionality, right, is mm -hmm. that who gets the power to suspend law? Who gets the power to issue uh, martial law or to suspend sort of rights uh, and privileges? It's the state. The state gets to decide that. And so there is no authority higher than the state, which is what makes it very, very distinct from previous political technologies or political arrangements. Yeah. Um, one of Halak's sort of main theses across his books is that the Sharia-based society, the you know the political executive, whatever we want to call it, the empire or the emperor or the sultan, they had an authority that was above them. Even if they lived in tension with that authority, they had to adhere to the Sharia. The Sharia was a sovereignty that was above all other sovereignties. And yeah. so it acted as a check and a balance to the power of a any sort of government or any sort of uh, political arrangement. Whereas in the contemporary um, time that we live in, the state is the ultimate authority. They are judge, jury, and executioner, as we say. They can decide when the law applies and when the law doesn't apply. Um, yeah, I, when we have our rights and when we don't have our rights. Exactly. It's not just a theoretical matter. In France, for example, where the sovereign secular state is the ultimate god in a, in a secularized sense, is actually dangerous, uh, subversive to actually think, well, there may actually be authority 
a theocentric understanding of society that God actually is the ultimate authority. And this is actually a dangerous, uh, problematized, even criminalized attitude to have if it's expressed publicly. So the, the state is not kind of neutral and comfortable with different ideas. Well, we're within a narrow confines. But if you step beyond that and question the fundamentals of the state, then you, you can even be uh, expelled from the country, as we've seen certain imams. Mm -hmm. And this traditionally was a Catholic point as well. It's not just Muslims. Uh, historically, Catholics also push back against this. But they've been quite domesticated uh, in France now, unfortunately. Right. And then that's the work of the, the state is doing upon religion. And that's kind of what we were getting at when we talked about Talal Asad and formations of the secular, about how the state and the specifically the secular modern nation state produces a form of acceptable religion and religiosity that is amenable to the personality of the state. That's one thing that Halak sort of uses as yeah. a phrase to get at. Because um, some people will point, well, what about, you know, evangelical Christians in the United States? Or what about the Anglican church in the UK? Here's religion. And, you know, so we don't really have secularism. It's like, no, the secular state gets to decide which forms of religiosity are amenable to it, give justification yep. for it, actually assist in its project. Um, yep. And anything that violates the personality of the state, then yes. that's going to be sidelined and you know restricted as, you know, France is probably uh, a very paradigmatic, you know, and, um, you know, essential um, exemplar yep. of. And and I can't, I can't, sorry, Tom, I can't resist oh, no, to quote um, Halleck on the very point that you you actually paraphrased him. Uh, Halleck wrote, let us remember, this is my favorite quote, but I'll always come up with this quote. Let us remember what secularism is. Secularism is not just segregating religious life into the private sphere. It is rather the determination of the state of what religion is and is not. This is just the point you were making. Where and how it can be exercised. In terms of political theology, secularism is the murder of God by the state. Now, this is where Halak does rise to the poetic levels of um, uh, Edward Said, I would argue, but only on this rare occasion. Right. He, he has it in him. He has it in him. <laughs> he has it in him sometimes. The state, he continues, can delimit, limit, exclude, or curtail any religious practice. Think of France, hijab, etc. And thus has the power to determine the quality and quantity of the religious sphere as it, the state, sees fit. This is modern secularism. It's not neutral. This is me speaking, obviously. It's not neutral. It, it's, it is as Halak, I think, describes it eloquently for once, says here. Anyway, thank you. <laughs> And another way to, to he comes at it from another sort of uh, way to think about it, if, if that's too, I think is very clear, but you know, some people, maybe it's a little convoluted or confusing. He says the state exists for its own self. The mm. state exists for its own sake, right? Even the citizens must sacrifice for the state, right? We have conscription and, you know, war and all these sorts of things. Yeah. Rather than the political bureaucracy or political arrangement being the means to an end. Okay, mm. and that's really the difference here. If you look at Islamic history or Muslim history, whatever you want to call it, the history of the Ummah, the statecraft, we wouldn't call it that, Halak would object to that terminology, whatever sort of political arrangement that existed was considered a means to an end, yes. right? A means to, impl uh, to applying the Sharia, a means to you know safeguarding rights, a means to doing all these other things, whereas the state exists for its own self and its own sake, and it will do whatever it has to do to preserve its mm. own sake. Um, despite the mythology, right? So if we think about the uh, legitimizing discourse or the mythology of, you know, well, this is the social compact theory and you guys surrender a little bit of your rights and so we offer protection. We are the expression of the sovereign collective will. That's where the, the modern state gets its authority from. 
this is a myth, right? This is not actually descriptive of what's going on. This is the story that the state itself tells in order to lend itself itself legitimacy. Um, And so Halak highlights the fact that, you know, this sort of tale erases the violence that's necessary in order for the modern state's sovereignty to be recognized. Um, And he actually says that if you want a formula for sovereignty, it would be violence plus juridicality. Okay. Uh, What does that mean? Okay. Violence. Well, let's think of a thought experiment where we have the the French Revolution and the um, American Revolution. Okay. What if either of them failed, right? Would we be considering um, them as legitimate or not? the modern nation state of the United States, the modern nation state of France are based off of violent revolutions. Okay. Where do they get their authority in the fact that they won, (laughs) right? If they had been unsuccessful in their violence, if their violence hadn't achieved their goals and, you know, wiped out every sort of opposing voice, then we would be calling them, who knows, we'd be calling them terrorists or calling them you know, the rebellion or the uprising, and we'd be talking about how bad they are. You mentioned the word ter- terrorist there. Sorry, the word terrorist itself comes from the French Revolution, the <laughs> reign of terror, which was their own explanation, you know, the, the Committee of Public Safety to exterminate the counter-revolutionaries, you know. So the, word, the terrorism itself, the definition, the concept actually politically comes from the aftermath of the French Revolution. Right. So it largely depends on how successful is your violence, right? In order yeah. to be to be recognized as a as a nation state, you need to have violence. You d- deploy violence, and it needs to be successful. You can't yeah. fail. Um, and then the other aspects is the juridicality. So you have to be um, a recognized authority within your own borders and from the UN. We see this when it comes to um, Kosovo, or when it comes to Palestine, or when it comes to all these sorts of. Um, attempts at getting recognition from outside. So, you know, you can't just do whatever you want and then all of a sudden you're a state. It does require recognition from external actors that aren't just yourself. Um, And to put the shoe on the other foot, this is why, you know, um, political arrangements or states that are flimsy and a joke, right? They they can get recognition. it's, It's rather arbitrary it depends on the UN. So we look at, uh, you know, I, I made the joke before about Sisi and his sort of election results. So there's the joke that, you know, Trump wants to win the, the election. And so he asks Sisi uh, how he should do it. Right. I think I brought up that joke before. And oh, so Trump does whatever he wants. And then Sisi wins the election with 94% of the vote. Right. The UN gives this recognition and legitimacy. Right. So they, they recognize Egypt as a, as a, a valid secular modern state. They'll all sit at the same table when it comes to the UN and act like there are no sort of problems domestically or, or you know, uh, problems. They'll act as if, and this is, I think, Halak's main point, mm-hmm. they'll act as if Sisi is the legitimate representative of the collective will of the Egyptian people, even though everybody knows it's a sham, right? So there's an aspect of, of legitimacy and authority and sovereignty that is granted from outside, <clears throat> and it often depends on how successful your violence is. This is part of the package of sovereignty and metaphysics that's packed in within the idea of a nation state. Mm-hmm. The third essential structure or feature of the state is its legislation and law and violence. Okay, He, can, he summarize, summarizes this concept as the compulsory jurisdiction, Okay, um, the monopoly on law. <coughs> Excuse me. If the nation state is the only legitimate expression of the sovereign will, the sovereign collective will of the nation, then it has the monopoly of law. It is the only force that is able to generate 
um, officially recognized law by which everybody has to abide, which is why people get sensitive about creeping Sharia or things like this. They, they hate to imagine another sort of system of law that's being applied and lived by. This is a crack in the idea that the state has the monopoly on the expression of sovereign will. There cannot be any admission that there is a sovereign will outside of the state. If you do, you're undermining the entire theory of state in the first place. This is also responsible for why we tr treat the state as a juridic person or a juristic person that represents the country as a whole, as a sociological and legal entity. You take the government to court and it's, you know, you versus the United States of America or you versus the, the United Kingdom, right? We're treating the state as if it's a person. Um, and that is indicative of its monopoly on law and the, compuls the compulsory nation of its jurisdiction. It maybe was worth saying that in the Islamic historical Islamic experience, there wasn't this homogenous unitary unitary legal system. There were mul multiple different kinds of legal systems within the uh, the Islamic polity. I'm thinking the Ottoman Empire, and this wasn't just some kind of Ottoman quirk. This was rooted in the Sharia itself. So Christians, for example, could have their own legal systems to some extent, as could the Jews and other groups as well. So they could do things like eat pork and uh, drink, consume wine within their own jurisdiction within an overall Islamic. Polity, something would be inconceivable within the modern state where there is a single rule of law for everyone, one size fits all. Islam, um, interestingly, was much more pluralist and diverse than modern nation states it could ever be, it would, I, I would argue. Yes, 100%. And so we have here, and this is what everybody kind of hears, the, the monopoly on violence or the mon monopoly on legitimate violence that the state holds. Um, there is no, so if you if you take maybe a pre-modern example on what we're talking about here, okay, let's say that there's a community of Christians uh, living under the Ottoman Empire and somebody violates one of their laws as a Christian, right? I don't, you know, whatever some of their laws are. They have the ability within their own courts to to punish, right? This is not considered a contradiction to the 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 sovereign will or a contradiction of the the sovereignty of the political arrangement. This is actually an expression of the political arrangement itself. Exactly, exactly. Whereas within the modern state, this is you can't do that. This is a violation of the state claiming the sole ability to represent a mm. singular homogenous common collective will. Yeah. And so there is only one type of law and only one type of justice, which is why, and only one type of violence, which is why the state is a homogenizing force. The modern yeah. nation state is a homogenizing force and a force that um, reduces the sort of complexity that we have. <coughs> the fourth um, out of five, you know, we'll have, inshallah, we'll have time for all of them. The fourth essential structure that makes a state a state or makes a modern nation state a modern nation state is the rational bureaucratic machine. That's how Halak describes it. Yeah, He says, compulsory organization with a territorial basis. We think about, um, you know, centralization. We think about the map, okay? Everybody, every single map that you've seen in school, um, the most common map that you have is the political map. And the political map ruins our imaginations because you look at the world and it's divided up into these interesting shapes and the shape is just one color, right? The United States is pink and the UK is green and France is blue. There is a logic that's baked into that type of thinking, and it is expressed right here that this is the territorial basis of the nation state, and everything is considered to be under the authority of that centralizing bureaucracy. You know, we're talking about how people are expected to behave in bureaucracy. We can look at it, and we, we, run up, we run up on these things all the time. 
when you have to get anything done, okay? You have to um, get your passport renewed or you have to uh, get your birth certificate, okay? There is an assumption that the way that, I just had this actually happen the other day where I was contacted by a lawyer because in a certain place in the Muslim world, they uh, a couple got married and they didn't register their marriage until 18 months after their nikah, okay? And the Western legal authorities could not fathom the situation because the bureaucratic state is, so, or the, bureau, the bureaucratic dimension of the state is so central to the identity of the modern state that to not register your marriage immediately is an indication that this is some sort of phony, funny business going on, that you weren't really married, right? Yeah. Similarly to registering births, okay? And these are sort of very common sort of examples of the tentacles or extent of the modern state, okay? To not register your birth is akin to not being born, right? In terms of, of the state. Um, you know, all of these sorts of things demonstrate the bureaucratic dimension of the modern nation state. Things are standardized and they have to be calculable, right? Population, the, the idea of thinking about human beings and souls as a population that we count and we categorize and how many here and what does production have to be? And, you know, what are sort of the housing stock and these sorts of things? Um, it's empirically measurable. And most important to this sort of character is that it's impersonal and impartial, supposedly. Okay. What does everybody say on customer service when you call them? Uh, I don't make the rules. These are just the rules. This is just how things are. There's no attentiveness to your particular situation and circumstances. We have a bureaucratic set of rules. We're going to apply those bureaucratic sets of rules universally to every single square inch of this territory and assume, again, homogenization of law, right? And assume that this is something that is going to be fair, that this actually leads into the best outcomes. Uh, and to not do so would necessarily be nepotism and favoritism and, and partiality and these sorts of things. <clears throat> so this is a way of ordering public and private life, okay? Um, as opposed to other things, like there are other sort of um, entities that also order public life, such as NGOs and corporations and political parties, but these two are regulated by the state. Mm -hmm. And so the state gets to set the, the tone and set the pace for every other regulating body or every other sort of corporate entity. The bureaucracy literally creates the community of the state. Again, we're talking about the nation as a, a, an imagined community, something that the state claims to be the only valid representative and spokesperson of, and the centralized bureaucracy as a key component, an essential component to creating that supposed community of the state. The other essential component to that is culture, okay? Because, you know, you think about creating a national community, you think right away to television probably and to radio and these sorts of things, even, even infrastructure such as trans transportation, you know, roads and trains and things like that, you know, particularly um, important in the history of the United States to creating anything that could be called a, a nation where people identify with each other as Americans, as opposed to what you have in other places in Europe, such as Italy, where people have their 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 feels are more in their local you know uh, situation, their city, or even their neighborhood. Right? How do we create this imagined community as a nation? If we're saying that the state is the only legitimate expression of collective will, we need to make sure that this nation is a strong sort of thing. We need to make sure that it's a thick concept that it has um, that people identify with it and not identify to other sorts of ways of conceiving of themselves. If they do, 
then the state's position as the spokesperson and sort of representative of that sovereign will is jeopardized. So the bureaucratization is a very key element of that. And then culture and cultural he hegemony is the other key feature mm -hmm. of that. Um, it is the, or what Halak says is the politicization of the cultural. <clears throat> so state and culture, they exist in a, in a dialectic. It's not that Halak doesn't want people to misunderstand him and think that the claim here is that the state produces culture or is the only one that generates culture. No, that's not what's going on. Um, but it has the power to organize and penetrate culture and society in a unique way. Okay, No other entity has the power to organize and penetrate culture. Just like for the, for the sake of bureaucracy, the state allows other sorts of entities such as the NGOs, such as the corporations, such as political parties to have their sort of leash, right? He let's go the leash and allows them to do their work. But in determining the extent to which those entities can do their work, you know, that is the power of the state. And ultimately, even those secondary sort of actors are doing the work of its of the state on its behalf. Okay, so the, the same is true of culture. The state gets to organize and penetrate culturally. And we've seen now how this happens. We can take the LGBTQ phenomenon as a particular example. Okay, you've got um, read alouds in libraries with cross-dressers and, and, and trans people and things like that. You've got um, certain sort of holidays and organizations within public schools, and you've got certain, um, you know, uh, ceremonies and rituals enshrining these sorts of things. Um, this is all cultural penetration by the state, or it's allowed by the state. You've got organizations such as GLAD, um, or the Gay Straight Alliance, that's a big one in the United States, GSA. I remember even back when I was in high school, the, the, the Gay Straight Alliance was like one of the, the pioneering uh, organizations to be allowed to form chapters in public schools in order to start pushing this certain LGBTQ narrative. Um, well, I, I love how in, in your schools, I love, I mean, being sarcastic, but <coughs> this is permitted to promote it in their schools, but religion is not. So presumably you can't right. pray in schools. So you, you can have that ideology, but you can't have religion. This is a, a warped understanding of the, a nation's priorities that one is prohibited and the other is promoted in the public schools. 100%. And that's that's uh, essentially the point, is that the state gets to play referee. Uh, the state gets to decide which things are going to be recognized and which not. You want to take, you know, recently there was somebody that was fairly local to us, but sort of outside of the Utica area, and they wanted to take their, their children out uh, for, for Friday prayers, which is a constitutionally protected right in the United States. You, oh, really? I know the school, yes, it is. Like the school is obligated to allow you to do that. You just, whatever forms you have to fill. However, yeah there's always that sort of wiggle room and there's always that sort of um, obstructionism, right? When it comes to people pursuing that, right? And so this particular family, it was, um, there was a lot of feet dragging. There was a lot of sort of tisk tisking at the family and every sort of thing made, uh, effort made to stigmatize the kids um, for missing. Like teachers, like when they came back to school, like, you know, keep on bringing up the fact that so-and-so and so-and-so missed school because of this and, oh, well, you missed out on that and, oh, well, you missed out on that, right? So we might have a constitutional right, but the way in which that it's it's um, it's embodied or that it's practiced or lived, you know, ref reflects something else entirely. Mm -hmm. And so the state gets to determine this and it occurs in accordance to the personality of the state, which organizations or which groups it allows to penetrate the culture and through, and through which means, right? This is all 
very, very much within the state's territory. And everybody knows, you know, it's also very well known and written about the way that the state has used culture uh, instrumentally when it comes to PR. In the 50s, you had jazz bands touring throughout, you know, the, the world to, you know, win people over away from communism. You have yeah. hip hop that does the same thing today. Yeah. Um, you know, the state is right there in the culture wars. Um, this is CIA backed, uh, CIA promoted jazz in Europe. This is not some <clears> conspiracy theory, although it was a conspiracy. This is, this is well known. This is in the public domain that the, the secrets have been disclosed. Um, and I'm also mindful of the collaboration. I'm not sure how that mentioned this between the state and major corporations like Twitter. Uh, uh, um, we, we see this in the recent disclosures uh, that have come out on Twitter, how the FBI and other agencies work, have worked incredibly closely with Twitter to um, oh, yeah. uh, ensure certain political outcomes, shall we say, and, and, and certain certain views are not were not welcome to be expressed. So it's not like a corporation is separate from the state. They can unofficially uh, be incredibly closely coordinated. Yes, yes, very much so. And so sort of as a final point here, um, when Halak is talking about cultural hegemony and how that intersects with the state and its personality, um, this also indicates why it, it reinforces point number one, okay, that um, the state or the nation state is a particularly European political arrangement and technology. Um, because he looks at if you look at european states or you look at the united states right they have effectively destroyed alternative internal entities in a way that quote unquote third world states have not yeah. okay so if you look at um he says third world states again quote unquote we can debate whether that's the most useful terminology to to use are only states in name only okay yes. they have some of these sort of one of the five or, or some of the five but they are not complete states in the sense that they are more legal fictions than they are true modern right. nation states. Um, what you have oftentimes is that you have tribal units, right? And we see this in Saudi Arabia. Take that as a, a, a yeah. paradigmatic example or an yeah. uh, a, a perfect example. Tribal units as the locus of true political loyalty in the yeah. nation, right? There is, it's very, very hard. You know, a lot of people, maybe recently it's changed with Saudi Arabia beating Argentina in the World Cup, but people's <laughs> loyalties are still along the lines of tribe more than they are to the nation. Yes. You know, and this happens, you know, throughout the world is that or or even the political class is really just the legalization of a particular tribe or a particular mm -hmm. tribal mm -hmm. class. And so mm -hmm. they've adopted the machinery of the state and they've adopted the techniques of the state, but underneath of it you don't have this nation state aspect. You don't have this formation of people's uh, self-understanding as identifying with the nation and identifying the state as the legitimate representative of that collective will, right? Mm. Um, so uh, what makes that possible? And why has Europe and, and, and North America been so successful? In addition to just the historical dimension that, well, they came up with the thing in the first place, is that they have been able to so fully and deeply culturally penetrate their societies because of their total destruction of the pre-state traditional societal units okay so if you look at things like uh the family and the guilds and the even sort of the millet system right the ottomans had whatever sort of pre-modern um you know social organization technologies that were existing the true sort of paradigmatic nation states of north america and europe have successfully dismantled those or neutered them or co-opted them to sort of do the work of the state which makes people usually 
at least a critical mass of people self-identify with the nation first and recognize their collective will as being represented by the state itself. Well and that brings us, I think, to the end of the section. And I think that's a good stop stopping point. So these are the five essential aspects of the state. It's not simply some trans-historical universal uh, way that we just talk about politics or government or executive leadership or things like that. These are very, very particular things. Once we recognize them as particular, in addition to the sort of assumptions about time that are going on, that opens the door to critique and to discussion and to for us as, as Muslims and people who want to think about how to structure a society that is much more amenable to sort of um, Islamic values, we can now take these sorts of things and challenge them and push back on them and say, well, this works and this is in accordance with what is divine sort of uh, will. And this isn't, right? This is something entirely uh, contradictory, right? And I think Halak's, one of his main theses is that the whole idea of sovereignty and no authority being above the state is the most fundamentally opposed and contradictory and threatening things to a truly Islamic society. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, thank you for that. Indeed, for Islam, of course, God is is sovereign, and that's not negotiable. That's not uh, a challenge. And the irony is, from a Western point of view, you think with its bad experience of religion, we're thinking of the churches and their totalitarian control of society. Pre-revolutionary France, obviously, is a great example. They think, well, in Islamic uh, equivalent, that would be equally totalitarian and rigid and monolithic. But actually, the opposite is the case. Even when a society is organised to in a theocentric way, as Islamic society is always, always were, there, there was always a diversity and plurality that was part of the very nature of that polity. As we said before, the Christians and Jews and others could organize their own affairs in ways, even when their practices were contrary to the normative Islamic understanding of behavior and morals and so on, they were still legally allowed to, by right, as people of the book. And that definition of people of the book was actually quite generous, it included other groups in the Hanafi school, even Hindus, I understand, were uh, treated legally as uh, in that same category. So the irony is the Islamic understanding is actually much more, to use loaded terms, progressive, liberal, I don't mean the, perhaps the Western sense, but diverse and pluralistic than the modern, you know, think of the usual whipping boy, which is France, which is very rigid, controlling, within itself state controlling behavior and we see the way it treats its minorities whether it be catholics historically who've been browbeaten into submission and the attempt is now being made obviously for uh, on muslims as well that they must submit to the secular state and all their practices which do not conform to secular liberal values must be denied expunged renounced so it's not free liberty egality for where is the liberty in that it's not really there it, it's liberty within very narrow defined parameters of course but uh, sorry legal fictions right as as halak would say legal yes. fiction yeah that's a brutal way of putting it but absolutely true <laughs> so uh we've been discussing the impossible state uh by halak islam politics and modernity's moral predicament um, i'm sure we both recommend this highly it's not always an easy read but it's certainly a rewarding and profitable read uh so i'm sure we both recommend it and it's extremely cool cover which i like um it's the Columbia University Press Distinguished Book Award. So it's won awards uh, from Columbia University where the author is a professor of humanities, of course. So thank you very much indeed, Tom, for your time, expertise, and your extremely eloquent summary of a, a very complex subject, actually, the way particularly where Halak expresses himself. It can, it, there's, there's so many caveats and nuances, but you've, I think, succinctly um, expressed the, 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 the meat of it. So thank you very much indeed, Tom.
Alhamdulillah, thank you for being an excellent interlocutor as always. It's always a it's always a pleasure. Alhamdulillah. Well, until next time, and of course, this this series, uh, inshallah, will will continue uh, into the new year as well, inshallah. So thank you very much. Till next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.